welcome to the Freightvine podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. This is Stephanie Bond, and I will be co-hosting this special bonus episode with my colleague, Abby Haney. Hey guys, Stephanie and I are producers and editors of the Freightvine podcast, and for this episode, we will be sharing some exclusive clips from episodes past. That's right. Today we're going to dig into the Freightvine archives and bring you some of our favorite conversations that didn't make it to air. If you've been around for any amount of time, you know that our regular host, Dr. Chris Kaplis, is an excellent interviewer, and he had the chance to sit down with some pretty awesome guests during 2019. So we are going to bring you some of that great content that you didn't get to hear and hopefully get you excited for what's to come on the Freightvine podcast for 2020. So let's get started. This first clip comes from our most recent episode with FreightWave CEO Craig Fuller. You may recall that Craig mentioned he looked after the disaster logistics team at U.S. Express. This piqued Chris's interest, so he asked Craig to elaborate on the life cycle of disruptions that come with storms, like Hurricane Harvey or Dorian. Let's hear what Craig had to say. Well, let me ask a question about Harvey, because I didn't realize that you had written those. We're actually doing a study up here at MIT trying to fully understand the impact of a disruption like Harvey or Dorian or whatever on the trucking network, because we're finding it's not like a classic ripple effect that as you're closer, the effect is bigger. And as you get further away, it dissipates. It's pockets. It's pulling capacity. So where do you see the biggest impact when you see this disruption for like a FEMA disruption? Is it all local or do you see it dispersed to other unexpected areas of the United States? No, it's definitely dispersed. And so when I was involved in FEMA disaster relief, this was 2003, 2005. So really it was the Hurricane Isabel, which hit mm-hmm. the Fort Eustace, uh, Hampton Roads area of Virginia, all the way to Katrina. So that was sort of my, you know, I think we handled 12 or 15 storms in that period. And this was a period of the mid 2000s where there was, you know, a lot of hurricane activity. Right. And then it sort of died out. Uh, and now it seems like it's sort of, you know, at least back. Uh, we're getting a lot more storms uh, this last couple of years. Um, but anyways, what ends up happening in a storm, you really have three lives of the storm. You have the pre-run-up, which is companies that involved in preparation materials. So you've got Home Depot and Lowe's bringing in plywood, duct tape, gas cans, uh, batteries. Those things are moving, but they move from all over the country. So they move from places like Oklahoma and Texas. And it doesn't matter geographically where the storm hits. Those products are going to originate wherever the production facility right. or the, where the warehouse is. And so it could be California. Like we moved a lot of freight from California to Florida. And so you have this pre-run-up that takes place. And then you have the storm that hits. And you have, at the same time, you have a lot of relief supplies which are being staged outside of harm's way. And a lot of it's bottled water. Uh, right. A lot of it's stuff that you would expect. You know, MREs are actually happening. You may have things uh, like first aid kits and generators and the stuff that you would expect in a relief. And then you have the post sort of rebuilding, which actually is takes place over months, if not years. And and so those are sort of the three legs of the storm. Right. The, the most impactful is the sort of recovery. The relief and the recovery are, are really the most impactful in terms of supply chain. Because what ends up happening is so much capacity gets taken out of the networks and Carriers are responding really for two reasons. One is they're responding because they feel a need to do it. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, logistics, that's what sort of at their finest. And then frankly, there's a lot of money. Right. There's a lot of opportunity in the market. And so they end up deploying their assets to assist. 
and that just disrupts everything and it, and it creates this sort of residual effect right. because you know the, the market is no longer optimized and so we saw it and it was uh you know it was a it creates a tremendous strain on your networks but it also creates a tremendous strain on all of the other networks because as that capacity gets drained to handle this new demand um it it has a, a pretty big impact and so we we wrote a lot about that and that was sort of what drove the original sort of freightways sort of foundational moment right and so that's funny because what we're seeing initially is that because the run up the pre is such a short time frame it's so compressed we're seeing a big spike there and more of a gradual afterwards but uh, that's interesting so you think the post has more of the long term impact i i think you do see a real short term impact in pre run up supplies of bottled water and a sort of these relief supplies or you know you have the buildings of you know the plywood and the duct tape yeah, and the, yeah. the battery come in as you'd mentioned, it's a lot of demand with a flash. Uh, so it, it doesn't have this sort of reverberation through the market. It, it will happen for a few, maybe a week, but then it goes away. But what ends up happening in the rebuilding process and the relief process, depending on how significant the storm is, and there is a, a correlation between how big of an impact the storm is. So like we had storms that hit Tallahassee. I can't remember the name of the storms of, of two years ago. It went over a, a loosely populated area and and so people get you know they talk about uh, storm sizes the storm size isn't as important as the density of where it hits if it hits in a place like or new orleans where you have a much denser population you're going to have a lot more relief and frankly when it hit houston because houston's such an economically important and frankly wealthy part of the country there was just a, a lot more money put into those elites and therefore you'll see a lot more impact that makes sense so this next clip is one of my favorite episodes that we did with Dr. Kristen Monaco from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Chris was razzing Kristen about her choice to stay in the trucking industry after she finished her dissertation. So in this clip, Kristen is explaining how she ended up at California State University Long Beach and what she learned during her tenure there about differences between drayage drivers and long haul drivers. Let's listen to what she had to say. You, so you get your dissertation. Uh, you didn't run screaming into the night away from trucking. You've stayed in it more or less for the last couple of decades for this. How, how has your research progressed from this? Has it stayed within the same area? Has it advanced the topics? I think in a similar area, sort of about three years after I got my dissertation, I was teaching at a university in Western Wisconsin and I was looking to move. And there was a job opening at California State University, Long Beach. And they specifically wanted someone who studied transportation economics, which is not very common in economics departments in academia because of the ports, right? So you have the ports of LA and Long Beach, and there's a lot of interesting questions there surrounding port drayage, which is sort of a segment of trucking that I had absolutely no background in because I was really focused on these long haul over the road drivers. So when I moved to California, I sort of refocused to understand how ports operate, their role in the supply chain, and how the market structure really affects what type of truck drivers are used and what they do operationally. So that's really interesting. I What do you see as the key differences between the drayage drivers versus the long haul? Are there still big differences between those two groups of uh, drivers? I think there are. So things have changed a lot in the past decade or so with port drayage, but it's still dominated by these sort of short hauls, a really different demographic profile, especially in California, where you have a lot of recent immigrants who enter this as a way of being sort of entrepreneurial and having job security because there's always freight to be moved. So 
those things are different, but sort of the same idea of understanding the nature of what they're doing, right. their hours, their pay, their work lives is is sort of similar. Do you, do you see the long haul drivers being a little more experienced or is it or is that not the case? I think in both cases, there is a distribution of experience, right? You have sort of these people who are always entering and then you have this very large core segment who have been doing this sort of work for a while. Because I know in California, the drive at the ports, there's been a lot of uh, effort there to reduce pollution and like upgrading the equipment. Did that have a big impact on the type of drivers used or did the transition to new equipment, was that slower because of the type of drivers that were there? I think the transition really came about as the result of regulation. If they waited for the market to transition to cleaner and newer trucks, that never would have happened in sort of the owner-operator model. And so even when I did my first surveys at the ports of LA and Long Beach, and this is sort of the early 2000s, just asking the model year of their truck was a little amazing. But anyone who'd been down to the ports at that (laughs) time would have seen that because what you see is sort of trucks that you clearly could identify used to be owned by a long-haul truckload carrier. (laughs) Right. So you sort of have the coloring and all of the indications of who used to own that (laughs) truck, you know, eight years before. Right. And so these are really in their third iteration of of a life. Right. They sort of go national to regional to portray. And without regulation, that would always be the case, I think. It was a pleasure having Chris's colleague at MIT on a few weeks ago. David Carell has a lot to offer when it comes to the driver shortage debate. In this clip, he gives us a behind-the-scenes look at how the MIT Freight Lab is calculating the probability of a driver quitting and the challenges of both false negatives and false positives. Absolutely. And and with the methodology that we're using, and this may be a little bit in the weeds for the listeners, but some might be interested, because we're using this machine learning approach, we can really calibrate the model to be useful to a dispatcher in the sense that we can say, how tightly tuned do you want this? Are you willing to accept maybe some false positives right. if we give you the right group of drivers to zoom in on? Whereas you know, other more statistical techniques might just say, this work experience is correlated with quitting. Our models will be able to say, for example, here's 500 drivers from your fleet that we think are in danger of quitting. And depending on how the dispatcher chooses to use that, they might say, great, we'll reach out to all 500, or we can calibrate it down and say, we only want the 25 that you really think are going to quit next week. Yeah, because that's the trick, right? Type 1, type 2 errors. Do you exactly. Are you worried about false positives or false negatives? So would I rather reach more drivers that might be at risk, might not be? Or, would I, or, am I, or is it expensive to do that? And do I only want to focus on some knowing that I'll miss some who might be at risk? And that's the classic challenge. Let's hear from David one more time. Just before this next clip, Chris and David were discussing David's research at MIT that found that U.S. truck drivers drive on average just 6.5 hours out of the possible 11 hours on a given day. Chris thought this sounded a little low, so he asked David to elaborate on his calculation of average drive time. Have you, uh, and I don't know the answer to this, have you looked at what that distribution looks like? So we say the average is six and a half. Mm -hmm. Is it pretty even around that or is it skewed? one way or the the other, because that's pretty low, right? Oh, yeah. Out of 11. So are there a bunch of drivers at like three and then a bunch up at 10, or is it pretty much clustered around there? So just thinking the last time I looked into the data, so I'd have to do a a real test to say this 
with supreme confidence or with full confidence, but what, what I recall seeing last time I looked at that was it wasn't so much by driver, but it would be because we're using an average, outlier experiences move the number. Okay. So you might have a lot of drivers who have a lot of weeks at seven hours a week, but every few weeks they'll just have a horrible experience. Ah, and I pulls see. pulls things down. So I, I think the, the variability is more around something that I've observed multiple times in the data that I'm sort of calling mega delays where, okay, you know, every once in a while, something, uh, maybe an unloading activity takes three hours, two hours, three hours. But then sometimes you have a horrible day where they say, sorry, we can't load you till tomorrow. And then you have 11 hours waiting. And right. that really pulls the out. I see. Down. I see. Let's revisit our episode with Andy Butler, who leads transportation procurement at Procter & Gamble. As Andy shares his knowledge of the power of empathy, it becomes clear to Chris that P&G is not just playing buzzword bingo. P&G is taking action to show drivers that they are valued. In this clip, Andy shares a story from P&G's annual carrier summit about a compelling interaction he had with a driver being honored at the event. After the ceremony, all of the drivers went out to dinner with their carriers, right? I made a point to stop by every single one of those dinners. So I spent 15 minutes at each dinner talking to the driver. And, and there's two stories from that evening that really resonate with me, Chris. Um, I talked to a driver mm-hmm. and I sat across the table from him. He was very quiet, almost you know, very introspective. And I said, hey, can you just tell me, why did you become a truck driver? And he looked up and he, and he looked me in the eye and he said, Andy, I was standing in the unemployment line. I had just lost my job. I was trying to figure out how I was literally going to make ends meet for my family. And I heard a guy behind me talking that he thought this company might be hiring truck drivers. So I got out of line in the unemployment line. I went to get my CDL and I became a truck driver. And now here I am receiving this award in front of hundreds of people going out to this dinner with the C-suite level folks of this Fortune 500 company. I don't even know how I got here. Right. I mean, th- those are the kind of things oh, that happen. At the last dinner that I went to, I look around the room and I see a bunch of the, uh, the senior leadership from this carrier. And I, and I said, hey, where's Tim? Where's your driver? And they all kind of looked sheepishly at me and said, Andy, he's not here. And I said, well, what do you mean he's not here? This whole thing is about celebrating him. And they said, well, look, we got him here because he delivered a load in Cincinnati and we're getting him back home because he's taken a load from one of your manufacturing plants that close by. And he actually has a pickup time tonight. And uh, we told him it was okay <laughs> if, he, if he waited till tomorrow morning. We've talked to the P&G operational team. It's actually not going to be late because of when we set the, the timing for things. So it's fine. And uh, he said, look, guys, I've, I've never been late to pick up a P&G load in my life. I'm certainly not starting tonight. So he took a taxi from our general offices to his hotel, picked up his truck and drove to our manufacturing site to pick up his load. And so while I felt bad that he couldn't be there, I said, clearly we've picked the right guy. So, you know, those are some of the stories that are really powerful. And by the way, it wasn't just powerful to me. In the room when we were recognizing them, we had some of our senior leadership in supply chain, some of our customer teams, some of our business units were there. So they could recognize as well. This is ultimately about the driver delivering every load of PNG product safely and on time. Our final clip also comes from the Kristen Monaco episode. As you may recall, Chris and Kristen tackled the economics of autonomous trucks and what that means for drivers in the U.S. labor market. Kristen shared her take on the potential for delivery robots in urban areas and their potential to replace human drivers. Here's their conversation. No, that that's interesting. Sometimes you see like uh, FedEx or UPS, they have like the little robots. You see them going up sidewalks. What do you think those potential for those to replace an actual vehicle? 
So I see them in practice the same way you see them in practice or other people. And it is a cute demonstration, but it's not the most efficient. (laughs) It's not the most efficient demonstration, right? They have trouble with curbs. They have trouble with steps. They have trouble navigating pedestrians around them or, you know, people in the street until the technology gets to the point where they really are just as efficient as people driving the trucks, loading and unloading, moving things around. I don't think you're going to see a big market penetration there. We're doing some work here in the mega city logistics lab at MIT, where you might have a combined or a hybrid approach. You might have a truck go up and maybe a series of drones will go up while they're actually making physical deliveries or a series of uh, trikes come out and they make deliveries local and then they get back in the truck, they go to another spot. So it's kind of like a swarm routing. But I, I agree with that. I don't think it's going to be series of robots just running up and down the sidewalk because they just don't seem to scale to the right size. It doesn't scale. And it's really difficult to work with the mix of all the activities that's going on in an urban area, right? And so you're delivering to say a restaurant or a convenience store on a street where there's pedestrians and there's buses and there's cyclists and there's people pushing strollers and how that works is really difficult to program and scale up. Well, that wraps up this episode. The Freightvine podcast is hosted by Chris Kaplis and Enam Ayub and is produced and edited by Abby Haney and myself. To hear previous episodes, please visit our website at chainalytics.com slash Freightvine. You can also subscribe to The Freightvine wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, please give us a review. It would mean a lot. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freightvine or suggestions for what we'd like to hear in the future, send us an email at podcast at chainalytics.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freightvine, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Kaplis back again for the Freightvine's podcast, and along with Enam Ayub. We just thought we'd give you a little background on ourselves before we dive into our regularly scheduled podcasts. So I'm calling in from Boston, and Inam, where are you? Are you in Austin now? Yes, I'm in Austin. What? (laughs) (laughs) You can't give me yes or no answers, man. You got to expand. Um, Okay, I'm going to start over. Okay, well, that's enough about us and what we've been up to doing, working here at the uh, FMIC group at Chainalytics. Um, Hopefully, you'll join us next time when we officially launch the podcast. Uh, And as we said before, the podcast is available in all the normal platforms to include Apple Podcasts, Sticker. uh, Let me start over. Stitcher. I don't use this. Stitcher. Okay. In today's market update, we will continue. Oh, <laughs> Welcome back to the. Uh, I always mess up on the very first thing. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. I'm going to start that again. Welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, Brent. So, why don't you. God. Uh, <laughs> this is how it's, it's going to be one of those days. Oh, come it's going to be one you, of those you days. You got this. You got it. I do I do this sh- all the time too. Do. That's what's so frustrating. <laughs> okay. Okay.
Right, right. Hey, Andy, let's. I'm going to take a break for a second. Um, move back from the mic a little bit. Some of your your peas are popping, so you can you're coming in loud and clear. So uh, just maybe a two or three inches away, that'd be better. Is All that right. okay? Yep, perfect. Is okay, this, is this better? So, yeah, that's perfect. All right, I'll so stay right here. Let me just make a note for that. So this this part won't will be edited out. <laughs> okay. It'll it'll be it'll be good in the uh, in the blooper section. <laughs> there you go. Okay, are we good with the intro? Yeah. If we didn't get it out of those three takes, it ain't happening. 